You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jam Mateus, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. got a special treat for you today as I had an opportunity the other day to talk to J.M. DiMatteis, famed Spider-Man writer whose story Craven's Last Hunt has uh, been toted as one of the best Spider-Man stories ever. In this episode we're going to be focusing on his time with Captain America. We appreciate all of our supporters on Patreon and so as a way of saying thank you, you get to hear this one first before it is released to the general public. So if you uh, want to hear even more interviews with uh, the creators of these books that we talk about during these podcasts, head on over to patreon.com slash thunderquack. And, um, and yeah, throw us a few bucks to show us uh, some support because we can't run all of the podcasts on the Thunderquack podcast network without your help. This episode is a companion to our episode, Captain America, Episode 9, Dawn's Early Light. And I recorded this interview on March 8th, 2017. And enough of me talking, let's get straight to the interview with J.M. DiMatteis. I have the pleasure of having on the show today J.M. DiMatteis, one of the guys who has touched many, many Marvel characters over the years. Um, Thank you, J.M., for being on the show. It's a pleasure. I wanted to uh, ask you a couple questions about Captain America. Um, The first one being basically, how did you get into Captain America? How did I get the assignment, or how did I as a fan get into Captain America? Well, that's a good question. Why don't we start with you as a fan? I assume that that came before you started writing Captain America. You know, well, there's you know, there's a couple of answers because the truth is, what I've discovered over the years as a writer is that there's your perception of a character as a reader, and there's a perception of a character as a writer, and they're not always the same thing. You know, sometimes you may be interested in a character, but they might not be a character that you totally adore, and then you get a chance to write that character, and something clicks, and you connect in a way you never anticipated, and off you go. I mean, I always loved Spider-Man, but I never like fell madly in love with the character until I started to write Spider-Man and really began to drill deep and understand the character. And then there are other characters you may love and you find when you write them that something doesn't click and you'd rather read about them than than write them. Uh, Captain America was certainly a character that I always enjoyed. Um, I remember when I was a kid, when I was, I'm talking, you know, like probably nine years old before I even got into Marvel, uh, one of the com- one of the only Marvel comic I read, which amuses me looking back, is Sergeant Fury because I'm so not into like war stories and war movies or the whole concept of war right. in general. For some reason, when I was a kid, I loved Sergeant Fury and Sergeant Rock and all that. And the first time I ever saw Captain America was an appearance in a Sergeant Fury comic when I was a kid, and he was this very strange, gaudy character that that I vaguely understood 
existed from another time. Do you know, I, I, might, I don't know whether that story was done before Captain America came back in the Avengers, or uh, but to me, I had never really heard the, heard of the character. He looked kind of strange. He had wings on his head, this really gaudy costume, you know. But it was also this amazing Kirby art, so it was a very intriguing character. And then eventually, when I started reading Marvel regularly, I certainly always enjoyed the character and followed you know many different interesting runs from you know Stan and Jack to Steve Englehart and 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 on and on and Stern and Byrne who were around you know maybe a year or two before I I started on the book but it wasn't like oh my god I'm in my pantheon of characters Captain America's at the top or anything like that and then when I when I got the assignment uh, to write the book you know I think I was offered well, here's here's an interesting story. I, mean, I hope it's an interesting story. Otherwise, it'll be a very boring story. <laughs> <laughs> How I started on the book was I was just I had just gotten my foot in the door at Marvel, and Marvel used to do these big treasury editions, these oversized, you know, giant treasury editions. Yeah. And this is the you know this must be 1979 or something like that, and they had done. Uh, some truly, truly uh, awful Captain America TV. They had done one one Captain America TV movie. It was really not very good. And there was another one coming up, and they wanted a comic book that would tie in somehow to the Captain America TV series. And Shooter handed me this assignment, Jim Shooter. And so I went off and I created this Cap story where somehow he ends up in Los Angeles and involved with the actor that plays Captain America, and it leads to this whole uh, strange plot by the Red Skull and on and on and on. And then someone somewhere, you know, woke up one morning and went, you know, we don't really want to tie into that movie, do we? <laughs> let's, let's check what we want to do, I think. Probably what they thought is we want to ignore those movies completely. So this, I had written, uh, I guess, the plots for this story, and uh, some, some time went by, and then someone said, well, why don't we use the, that story you were going to do for the Treasury Edition? It's a big, long story. We can use it as a, you know, three fill-ins for Captain America. We just need to take out the reference to um, to the to the movie and and use create something else to fit in that space. So that's what I did, and that ended up being my first three issues of Captain America, which wasn't my assignment. You are now the writer of Captain America. It just began with okay, let's use this story that you wrote, and we'll use it in Captain America. And doing those three issues is what eventually led to me getting the assignment. Wow, that's really interesting. My my next question was why I did you? It was interesting. <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting um, because, well, specifically because my very next question was was going to be why did you bring Red Skull in right away when you started writing Captain America? And now I have my answer. <laughs> yeah, because it was a standalone story, and you wanted something big, so there was the Red Skull. You yeah, know? yeah. So, wow. so, like I said, this wasn't the beginning of my run, as far as I was concerned. This was just three filling issues, you know, that I was lucky enough to have Mike Zek drawing. So after that, they were impressed with your work? Did they offer you the regular gig? I would think so, because they did offer me the gig. <laughs> <laughs> they were either impressed with my work or desperate. I don't know, one or the other. But yeah, and Jim Salakrup, a wonderful guy, he was the editor, and we had Mike Zek on the art, and you couldn't ask for anything more. Yeah. And we were off, you know? Um, and uh, what was your plan for Captain America? Did you have any sort of editorial mandates that you had to follow, or uh, were you kind of open to doing whatever you wanted? As I recall, there were no editorial mandates, and it was just, here's Captain America, go play, you know? And and in those days, I always remember, it always took me a while to kind of wrestle these characters down and figure out who they were and what I wanted to do with them, you know? So I think it took me a little while to find the book. Um, and it's interesting, too, because looking back, as I remember in the beginning, you know, Mike Zek, who went on to become 
one of my all-time favorite collaborators, and talk about writer-artist chemistry. We had it in spades, and yet at the very beginning, our, there was a little bit of creative awkwardness between us as we, we were finding the book and finding each other, and then something clicked, and we were just off. You know, we were, we were off like a rocket. And really working together on Captain America in many ways laid the groundwork for what we later did with Craven's Last Hunt because we had built up this sort of chemical combustion between us that just got unleashed on that Craven story. Right, yeah. That's uh, coming up to a uh, milestone anniversary pretty soon. Yeah, I think in June it's 30 years. That's amazing, yeah. Which is astonishing, and I was only five when I wrote it. Um, (laughs) Nice. Uh, When you did start your run on Captain America for real... You were credited yeah. as scripter rather than writer. Uh, you know, that was just the lingo of the day. Yeah. A lot of, for some reason in those days, instead of saying writer, we said scripter, whereas sometimes scripter makes it seem like you're only doing, like when I work with Keith, he does the plot, I do the script. Right. Keith Gif- um, but no, no, it was, you know, scripter and writer were synonymous in those days. So okay. it wasn't like any sort of, and, and there was nothing. It was just me writing the book. There was nobody else involved. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's funny that really you bring that up because, yeah, that was sort of a common thing then. You would write scripter or writer and it was interchangeable, whereas scripter then came to mean something more more defined as time went by. Um, you've created a, a number of characters during your run. Are there any of the ones that you've created that are standout? I'm thinking of like maybe Vermin or Mother, Mother Superior. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just answered the question, I guess. <laughs> Ver, you know, Vermin um, was one that, that that we cooked up early on, and Mike so beautifully visually realized that character. And uh, I used Vermin in Captain America several times. I later used him uh, in a Marvel team-up that Cap was in. And then when Mike and I got uh, got the, the, the Spider-Man gig, and I needed one more element in that story, uh, Vermin was perfect. You know, but he came to mind because we... We had created him together in Captain America. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Vermin was an interesting character, and the more I used him uh, in Craven's Last Hunt, and then when I was writing Spectacular Spider-Man, and really unpeeled the layers of the character and found out who he was and where he came from and what created him, really, really an interesting character. You know, in the first appearance, it was just like a cool man rat who lives in the sewer. You know? <laughs> yeah, but that, uh, that's how, that's where you start, and then you have to. Your job as a writer is get out your little drill and drill deep into the character's head and figure out who these people really are. And Mother Superior is an interesting character because uh, obviously went on to become uh, an even more major uh, character in the book uh, years later, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. But she was a new character and the Red Skull's daughter, and I thought added a lot of interesting texture mother superior and her sisters of sin when i look back on maze we got away with it because they were they were basically insane nazi nuns yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, great comic book stuff there yeah which is why they probably changed her name to sin and, and kind of took out the kind of catholicism of the name you know oh, yeah. um but yeah those though i really enjoyed those characters this, you know the sisters of sin were as i recall were at least partly inspired by uh, kirby's female furies if you remember from his uh from the New fourth, Gods, fourth world, big, yeah. Big Barda and her female furies. I wanted a, a team of very formidable women uh, like that, and uh, they were they were a great group of characters. When you were putting together your cap stories, um, did you try to focus more on the social commentary? It wasn't conscious, in the sense of like I'm going to write social commentary stories in quotes and caps. You know, um, 
it simply was you're writing Captain America, and it's sort of natural for the stories to lead you in that direction. You know, right. I don't think certainly every story was not a social commentary story, but they were in there. But when you're when you're writing a character who is the embodiment of the the physical embodiment of the American dream, you're going to want to write about the different uh, gradations of American society and how they how the tension between them and that American dream. So uh, it's, that sort of came along naturally. But I was also just as interested in just the character and the characters. You know, Roger Stern, although he had a short run, really spent time developing Steve Rogers as a character and giving him a world, you know, putting him in that world in Brooklyn Heights and everything. And that had, you know, he had just sort of, he opened the door for that. And I just went in and, and, and tried to develop that even more. And especially uh, what was very central to my run was, was the Steve Bernie relationship, right? And and all those friendships, you know, Steve and Bernie, Steve and Sam Wilson. Then we brought in um, the Bucky of the nineteen fifties and recast him as Nomad and gave him a name. He hadn't, he didn't have a name before. Before we we made him into, I believe it was James Monroe was his name. And all those characters became kind of a family and 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 the sort of the human grounding that Cap needed. Because you know, look at the old Lee Kirby stories. Aside from the fact that he was always pining for uh, his lost love, uh, was it Agent 17? Is that what she was? I forget yeah. which. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He didn't really have a life. And then they tried to make him a cop once, and it lasted for like two and a half issues. Right. You know? <laughs> and, um, and I thought it was important and interesting to have him at least attempt to have a life. And Bernie is one of those characters that the more I wrote her really evolved into such an important part of the book and their relationship was such an important part of the book. Really liked Bernie. I, I don't know whatever, in, as other writers came along, whatever happened to her or how they wrote her out or what she turned into along the way, but I loved writing that. I, I felt like the Bernie-Steve uh, relationship was as important as the Peter Parker-Mary Jane relationship was when I was writing uh, Spider-Man. One of the things I liked about their relationship and her as a character is that she was smart enough to figure out Cap's secret. Pretty quick, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the truth is you know, we, we all take this leap of faith that, you know, very few people could ever figure this stuff out, you know, uh, and, and, you know, the biggest leap of faith is always with Clark Kent and Superman. Of course. Uh, or if you watch the Supergirl TV show, you know, with Kara and Supergirl, they look exactly alike, except yeah. one of them has glasses, one leaves the room, the other one flies in, and nobody notices the difference. You just, it's just part of the mythology and you accept it. But, you know, in anything even vaguely resembling the real world, uh, you know, if if my wife was suddenly running around the streets in a costume and I encountered her, I wouldn't be fooled. I would know it was her. Right. You know, here's looking and speaking this very intimate relationship, and and she looks up and there he is giving the kind of his same kind of speech he was giving her that morning at home. You know, oh, okay. It doesn't take a genius to make that leap and figure it out. Um, so yeah, that was that was fun. And then of course. It, there was never he, he Steve sort of retreated into that. Oh, what will my enemies do and all that stuff? And and she didn't buy any of that. Any of that she didn't buy any of the comic book cliches. We're in a relationship. I love you. You're Captain America. Okay, let's move on from here. Yeah, that's great, and that allows you, especially I think at this time in the '80s, um, that uh, that was kind of new ground for a lot of yeah, uh, a lot yeah. of relationships. You know, there, you, you mentioned. I just remembered you mentioned other characters that I created during that run that were important to me. And one of the most important was Arnie Roth. I was going to ask uh, you about Arnie, yeah. yeah. 
which I didn't even re- I realize in retrospect how important Arnie was because you know when I'm writing this stuff just as what you said with the social commentary I'm not desperately trying to make a statement I'm just looking for interesting stories so you know this is the early 1980s so um, characters from the 1940s would, were older but not you know if you're writing it now a friend from Steve's childhood would be dead. You wouldn't even have that right. character. In yeah. 1980, you could do it, and and he could be older. And and but so we brought in Arnie Roth, and Arnie was gay. Yeah. The time when very very few characters in comics, in mainstream comics, were gay. If if any, I don't. I'm sure there were. There must be others. There must have been others out there, but there weren't a lot of them. And they certainly Arnie, weren't the main characters. Yeah. And they certainly weren't important. You know, yeah, main characters in a book. And so Arnie became a very important part of that whole run. But, you know, and I look back now and people look back on those stories and, and they speak uh, very warmly of them uh, in terms of its portrayal of gay characters and all that. And I, and I really appreciate that. And I'm very grateful that I had the wisdom to do that. But I wasn't trying to, like, make a statement like, I'm going to bring in a gay character. It just, it flowed naturally. You know, the, the character of Captain America is someone who represents the best in America, which is accepting. So I look, well, he's got a Jewish girlfriend. He's got a black best friend with the Falcon. You know, he's taken in this poor, beleaguered, lost kid from the 1950s. And, you know, why wouldn't he have a gay friend? To me, that's, you know, that's America. That's inclusion. You know, we talk about diversity now, but I guess that's what I was getting at then in, in more of an intuitive, unconscious way was to have the people around Cap uh, represent America in its best and broadest sense. And again, it wasn't like I'm going to make a statement. It just it flowed from the stories and from who the character was. But there, I've I've read a lot of articles that people have written about Arnie, and uh, and yeah, I'm very grateful that that I did that and that it seems to have meant something to a lot of people at the time. And the other cool thing is that basically, if you look at the Captain America movies, what they did with the Bucky character was. They made him uh, Arnie Roth without the, with the, you know, without the without the gay angle. But if you look at Arnie's relationship with Steve, the way I laid it out in the book, Arnie was the the strong, uh, you know, best friend who always protected puny little Steve. I mean, that's what they they turned Bucky into in the movies. Right. Grafted Arnie and Bucky, and they sort of they merged these two elements together, and uh, and so that was kind of cool. I, 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 honest to God, I sat through the whole movie, and someone else had to point it out to me. And I went, Oh yeah, you're right. That's what I did. <laughs> I didn't wow. even read when I was watching the movie. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, your your uh, influence is uh, felt, whether they are, were conscious of that or not when they made that change. Right, right. But it absolutely was the Arnie backstory. Yeah, uh, and, and it was Arnie turned into Bucky. Um, and you had um, you had Sam Wilson running for Congress in your run right. too. Uh, can you tell me a little bit what, about why you wanted him to go in that direction? You know, here's one of the problems with with talking about something that I wrote in the early 1980s is that I don't always remember the. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I don't remember whether that had been something that was hinted at before I came on the book, or whether I just cooked it up myself. But you know, Sam was an interesting character. Someone on Twitter recently found this. They 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 put it up on Twitter. Uh, something I didn't remember, a letter I wrote when I was 14 or something to Captain America after the first, or maybe younger after the first uh, Falcon story came out. And this rave review, what a great character, oh God, I love this. And I remember that, and I don't remember the Falcon even being one of my favorite characters. But clearly when I was a, when I was a kid, I must have really reacted to that character, because he was really one of the earliest black characters, uh, black superheroes in comics. We had the, we had the Black Panther 
but the Black Panther was this king from Wakanda in Africa. Sam was just a re- you know a regular guy. Yeah, uh, and that's what I think made him so special. He wasn't you know some elevated king from an African nation. He was just Sam Wilson, and uh, and so I, I loved their relationship, Sam and Steve. And I was I think I would guess that I was just looking for something to make it all more interesting. So I just uh, I followed that and I pursued that. And the other thing that I did with um, with Sam was I, I really went out of my way to undo the Snap Wilson thing that had been done before. Right. Um, you know, uh, uh, and you know, I, I don't. I'm not a big fan of undoing other writers' work, especially writers that I respect. Um, but uh, that particular story, I, uh, which I had missed at the time, and I think when I was reading Captain America, what I what I would do, especially in those days, it was a great excuse to go out and buy tons of back issues, you know, <laughs> and read this stuff. And suddenly here's this story that says that Sam Wilson was really this sort of, uh, what, drug-dealing pimp? Yeah. That Red Skull turned into this, like, really nice guy in order to uh, plant him in Captain America's life. And and I just found that really upsetting and offensive. You know, so I, I, I just had to find a way. I didn't, And what I did was I didn't undo that story. I found a way to explain it and restore Sam to being the good and decent man that he was before Snap Wilson and after. So I created this backstory about his father's uh, murder and, and, and uh, this trauma that he went through. And, and so I hopefully um, restored some of that dignity because I thought, I thought that that story sort of tore away Sam's dignity. And when you didn't have that many uh, outstanding black characters in comics, to do that I didn't think was the best idea. Right, yeah. Now you brought back uh, Baron Zemo in your run as well. Uh, yeah. Under like it was his son though, which is kind of the Zemo that that has uh, persisted over the years now. It's another one that's sort of gone on and and become a, a really big deal. And and um, Roy Thomas had done a story years before with this character, the Phoenix. It was a one issue story, and at the end of the story, he revealed himself to be the son of Zemo, and he fell into a vat of something horrible, and they thought he died, and that was the end of it. And I thought that was a cool thing, you know, because uh, Zemo was always an interesting character, and and the son of someone like that bearing the burden of the father's legacy to me is always more interesting than the you know Zemo himself was sort of a one note bad guy. Right. But the, with the son, you can bring in all kinds of psychological layering as he's struggling with this uh, legacy. Um, so I thought, why not bring him back and make him you know make him officially not the Phoenix but Baron Zemo again. And that really reestablished that character in Cap's uh, mythology. Yeah, really. It's interesting now looking back because, you know, when I was writing that book, I don't remember a lot of response to the book one way or the other, people loving it, people hating it, people anything. And it's one of those runs that as the years have passed, you know, 10 years went by, 20 years went by, and all of a sudden I'm sitting at conventions and people are coming up to me with, with, with their Captain Americas to sign. And I see how these characters and what I did how it's all sort of echoed out into into you know the wider Marvel universe. So at the time it was just you know it was this gig I was trying to do my best. I, I was still relatively new to the business and learning my craft. So I'm very uh, gratified to see that what I did then had impact and staying power. One of the most memorable things, and this is how you capped off your run. <laughs> capped off. That's a nice pun there. Um, <laughs> is you uh, you showed the face of the Red Skull and gave him a backstory. Now. Was there a lot of uh, pressure to make this uh, something 
quite memorable? You know, it wasn't a question of, of, of you know, pressure from anyone else. I was working, I should mention that through the whole run, my editor was Mark Gruenwald, who was just, uh, the, his loss is still felt all these years later. Yes. And he, he died very young. And he was just, he was a great guy. He was a wonderful editor. He was a good friend. And uh, it was just, you know, a pleasure to work with him on that book. And he was the kind of editor who was always there to suggest cool ideas if he needed them, which he often did, or to get out of the way when you had your own thing and just wanted to go and follow it. And that whole year-long story, which was basically, you know, which was even started to be set up before then, uh, where the Red Skull had aged and then he aged Cap and they were heading for this massive final showdown, was one where Mark just got out of the way and said, go for it, have fun, do what you want. And, you know, the Red Skull, again, is one of these characters where we knew about him, but I wanted to, that's just me as a writer. I always want to know more. Like I said before, get out the drill, stick it in that character's head and drill deep and see what else is in there. So I took the original Lee Kirby origin of the skull and I sort of stuck a piece of dynamite in it and blew it open to see what was underneath, so, which I hope uh, deepened and expanded the character of the Red Skull. Because I, you know, I don't like the villain that is just sort of like, I am the villain, yeah. <laughs> You know, and that's right. basically I'm evil, and that's his reason for existence. You know, you know, every once in a while to have a character that's purely deranged and pure evil, you know, fine. But in general, what I, as a writer, what I love is to look at the villains, and and when I when I teach my writing classes, I call it the big why. Why do they do that? There's this guy Craven. He runs around in leopard, you know, skin pedal pushers, runs around in a hat and trying to shoot Spider-Man. You know what? What the hell happened in your childhood <laughs> if you want to do that, you know? And then you end up with an interesting story as you try to answer that question. And that's what I tried to do with the Red Skull. And that's why giving, you know, bringing in the daughter also played off, you know, what I, what I, what I established in his origin, things with his own mother, his own father, and what he went through as a child and what shaped him. So I, I thought that, I hope that that made the character more interesting. What do you think it is about Red Skull that uh, keeps writers coming back to that character? Well, first, it's just one of the greatest visuals in comics. You know what I mean? It just is. I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's incredibly creepy. It's incredibly striking. Um, and then, of course, there's that link to what is still we still view as one of the greatest horrors in modern history, which is Nazism, you know, just, yeah. just evil, soulless thing we could think of. And and so you know I think those elements together, and then of course the way he was portrayed, the, you know the, originally, and then when Stan and Jack brought him back, you know there was uh, there was just something about that character that draws you back to him. I mean one of my favorite favorite of the Lee and Kirby uh, Cap stories is the one where the Red Skull has the cosmic cube. You know, right. it was a, just a great story, and Kirby at the peak of his powers. You know, just the visuals were so incredible, and. Um, yeah, you know, those classic villains like the Joker, it's the same thing. The Joker has this incredible visual. I mean, I don't know if we would love the Joker half as much if he didn't look the way he looks, you know? Right. Something, the, the visual draws us into the personality, and the personality keeps us there. And uh, it's, it's fascinating which, which villains click and which don't, and why they click. And sometimes it's just a mystery. You know, why does this, any character, why does this character have staying power and this one doesn't? When if you look at them objectively, they might, be, they might both be just as interesting, but there's something that clicks sort of in, in our universal consciousness, our collective consciousness, and we go that one. Yeah. You know? Okay, here's kind of a, a weird question. Um, Team America, 
that was was were they just in there? First of all, did you create these characters? And um, no, no, I no, I did not create. That's what I, I figured. Remember, is fun. They they were doing a Team America book. That was that they were already working on. Yeah. I think they were toys, weren't they? Toys or something? Not sure. I think sure. it was toy line. Um, whatever it was, I was basically told we want to pre- premiere these characters in Captain America. Right. If I had anything to do with, I, I, I don't know what I might have added to the template of who the characters were or personality. Or I think my my vague memory is that they were pretty much handed to me and said, "Here, they've never been used before, but use them in this story." And I tried my best because I'm not a big fan of like you know like here's this big crossover so now you must cross over for three issues or we want to use these characters please force them into your story you know (laughs) yeah when you find yourself in that position what you have to do is try your best to make a story of substance and if what I'm remembering correctly that was the story where the mad thinker had created his own little town somewhere where he had androids of like Einstein and Dostoevsky and all these famous Mark Twain Mark Twain right so I tried to make a. It was kind of like a little, almost like a little Twilight Zone story, you know, featuring Captain America and Team America, who kept popping up for reasons that I don't recall. So yeah, they were they they. I was asked to do that. Sort of like a backdoor pilot. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But I, my memory is, you know, those characters were set, you know, maybe because they were based on a toy line or something. And I said, this this guy, this guy, this guy, and there was someone called the Marauder who was a big mystery, and that's all I really remember about them. And then I think they got their own book after that. Right. They were around for a couple of years, and then they disappeared. <laughs> yeah. That's like, I just remembered there was another thing, too. In one of the issues, uh, they, they go to the movies, and there's like a, uh, they're watching a, a, a documentary or a trailer, or an old trailer or a news thing. It was the Defenders of World War II. And they stuck them on the cover of the book. And all I remember is, Someone said you have to fit this in the book somewhere for some copyright reason or something, and I had no idea who these characters were. And we just found a way to kind of shoehorn them into the story because Marvel needed to maintain a copyright or something like that. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's amazing how many of those decisions are based on copyrights or, or right, that right, kind right. Of stuff. But I have to say, you know, with those with those couple of exceptions, I had so much freedom. Uh, on that book to do what I wanted to do and as I said Mark was always there to let me go as far as I wanted to or to be there with great great ideas Mark would say like hey you know why don't you bring back the scarecrow because he knew I'd like to play with the villains why don't you bring back the porcupine and I'd go off and I'd think about these characters and and, um, try to figure out an interesting way in a way to make them more interesting than than they might have been Um, and Mark was always coming up with things I, I have to say the probably the best thing he ever did in terms of feeding into the story was he was the one we did a, 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 the last three or four issues that Mike Zek did was a Deathlock story and I think it's the one of the best things Mike and I did together on that book and um, that was Mark's idea he said you know we're coming up on whatever I guess they had done this thing in the original Deathlock stories that something big happened in 1983 he said we're coming up on 1983 we should do a Deathlock story so he sent me all these old Deathlock comics which were really cool but but there was a lot of stuff going on and I had a really hard time wrapping my my brain around how to take all this information and make it into a coherent Captain America story you know and Mark being the wonderful editor that he was um wrote out an entire Deathlock timeline for me, you know? Whoa. Uh, 
you know, because, you know, Mark really, like, loved continuity. So he, he wrote down everything. This happened, this happened, this, this happened. And then I put, and I just, I call, at one point I called him up and I said, you know, I don't think I can do this story. It's just too, it's giving me a headache until I clicked on the psychological slash emotional thread that allowed me to step into the story, which was that there was a Deathlock clone out there and there was Deathlock. And one was searching for the other, so it became a story essentially about the search for personal identity, you know, and how these two coming together created a whole man again. And once I, I, if I can't find the emotional thread or the psychological thread, I can't write the story no matter how much cool stuff there is around it. But again, Mark, you know, Mark helped me so much, so much that I even put him in the credits as co-plotter. And as the editor, he felt like he didn't deserve credit as co-plotter and took that credit out of the book. You know, that's the guy. That's the kind of guy he was. Yeah. Wow. Um, and had you worked with him before Captain America? Yes. I, I think when I first started at Marvel, he was might have been the assistant editor on Marvel Team-Up. And I know we worked on other things. Um, he was Denny O'Neill's assistant when I first met him. And we just, you know, we were about the same age, you know, the sort of the same pop cultural sensibility. So, you know, we became, uh, aside from working together, we were friends, you know, so we... So we're and and I got the cap the cap gig you know pretty soon and he took it over pretty soon after I came on board. So we worked together for a number of you know I think you know maybe Salakup was there for the first three or six months and then Mark was there for the rest of my three year run on that book. And Mike Collin, uh, who was you know his first gig at Marvel was Mark's assistant. Oh. So Mike Collin was the assistant editor on that book. So w- when you brought Bucky back to uh, mm-hmm. to the present day which is 1983 uh were you were was the plan pardon <laughs> that's the present day is like blowing my mind a little bit it's like yeah. so long ago now you know i know did you have the intention to to create the nomad character from the get-go i don't know whether that was in my head right off the bat i'm a huge huge fan of steve Englehart's run on captain america it was just one of the incredible classic runs you know yeah. and the uh, the cap of the 50s story i remember as a fan you know my head just exploded you know because i wasn't even aware of that old stuff and that they were taking this old obscure 1950s stories that people sort of pretended didn't exist and found a way to bring it in it was just it was a very cool story and of course the storyline where cap became nomad was a really really classic great story i mean Especially when Sal Buscema was drawing that book and Englehart was writing it, they were such a great team. Mm-hmm. I love Sal anyway, uh, so I loved that run. So and I and you never really knew anything about that character, but I you know and I love the whole man out of time thing. That's one of the um, appealing elements of Captain America's character. So to bring in this kid who is now a man out of time, he has no place to go, he has nowhere to turn. Uh, and he so he turns to the one person in the world he could possibly trust, which is Captain America, and and of course Cap, you know, having been screwed around so many times with fake Bucky's and stuff, his first response, as I recall, when the kid shows up at the door, is to basically grab him and slam him on the floor, yeah, because it's immediately it's part of some supervillain plot, you know, until the kid explains, no, 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 I'm the other one, I'm the one from the 1950s, you know, and he evolved into really an important part of the cast, and I got to explore his character. And then it just seemed like he needed an identity, and the the concept of Bucky just seemed too retro, you know. Yeah. Uh, having a Bucky running around with a Captain America, and since Cap had been Nomad, it seemed like it would be logical for him to say, "Well, you know, basically, I got this costume in the closet, you know." <laughs> <laughs> and so it gave him a good identity, which again went on for quite some time after that. And didn't he even have his own book for a while? I think he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, just for a little while. Yeah, so one, you know, one more thing from that run that went on and, and had a had a longer shelf life that I would have never anticipated. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about Mike Zek and working with him? Did you, as a writer, um, do a lot of your your plots to to hit, to work with his strengths? You know, it's not so much. Um, you know, once I'm into the story, I'm into the story. Uh, and I'm not thinking these are Mike's strengths or these are Mike's weaknesses. But the, the joy of working with an artist like Mike is he, aside from being just a fantastic artist in terms of his ability to draw, everything is dynamic. His ability to draw is just superb. He's also a superb storyteller. Can, some guys can draw really well, but they can't necessarily tell a story. Some guys tell a story really well, but maybe their drawing isn't that strong. Mike has both. So when, and, and we worked in the in what they called Marvel style, the plot first style, where right. I would write a plot, a detailed plot, Mike would draw it, and then I would dialogue from the artwork. The great thing about Mike is that all the things you ask for in the plot are there on the page. They're clear as a bell. You know what's happening in every panel. You can see the emotion on the characters' faces. So you as the writer, when you go in to script it, you're not trying to figure out Sometimes you get the artwork back and the things you ask for in the plot aren't there. So you have to belabor things in dialogue or captions to get that information across. This is how so-and-so is feeling in this moment. Well, if you can look at that character's face and know how they're feeling, you don't have to write three captions explaining how they're feeling, you know? Right. And with Mike, the storytelling was there, the emotion was there, the clarity was there, everything I asked there for was there, and it was drawn in the most dynamic way imaginable so I was free then, since level one was all explained in the art, to go down to level two or level three with the characters. You know, when we did the Deathlock story, so much of that story was internal monologue because I didn't have to explain what was happening in the pictures. The pictures are perfectly clear, so I'm free to get into the characters' heads more. And it's exactly what happened with Craven's Last Hunt. I didn't have to explain these things that with another artist I might have had to explain in the art. So that that almost that entire six-issue story is internal monologues from the characters because the action, the movement, the surface emotion is all there in the artwork. And that is the beauty of working with Mike Zek. And, you know, Mike basically uh, doesn't do comics anymore. He, he, he works on com commissions, and he seems to have a great time doing it and uh, make a nice living doing it. But, boy... I would pay good money to work with him again. Yeah. After you tied up your your big red skull story with three hundred, uh, you left the book. Uh, well, because I didn't tie up my story with three hundred. Well, well, right. <laughs> yeah. I, um, but was there a reason you stepped out of that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've talked about this and written about this before, but I suspect a lot of people haven't heard the story. So I had this story planned. This story was like a story that ran for a year or more, this final showdown with the Red Skull. And what it drew me to with Cap's character was the idea that here's this guy who at this point in time had been at this for 40 years. Um, you know, fighting the bad guys, punching them in the face, dropping buildings on their heads. It's been going on. And especially this dance with the Red Skull that just never seemed to end. And in the course of this storyline, every single person that Cap held dear Bernie and Sam and, and, and Jack Monroe and, and Arnie, they were all threatened. They were all damaged in some way by what the skull had done. And they have this final showdown. You know, Cap is, Cap is dying because the skull has aged him yeah. and poisoned him. The skull, they have this final battle. The skull finally dies. Um, uh, Cap gets restored by a character named Black Crow, another character that I created for the book that I 
really, really love, a uh, Native American character. And what my thought was, after being through this for 40 years, after having this final confrontation with the skull that ends in his death, that threatens everyone he loves, a guy like Steve Rogers, who is intelligent and sensitive and philosophical, is going to look up and say, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Is there another way to live? You know, punching the bad guys in the face and dropping buildings on their heads doesn't always work. There must be another way. And I was going to have him come to this revelation and, and, and decide to walk another path. He's going to take his shield and hurl it into the East River, which was a scene that I, that I had planned and written. Um, and he was going to see how he could live a life to affect change in the world without violence. And I mapped out this whole incredible story, which I thought, had we done it at the time, would be a story that people would absolutely still be talking about today, because it would have been uh, groundbreaking. Now, at the time, I didn't think I'm writing the same thing. I'm writing a groundbreaking story, but I think looking back, it would have been groundbreaking. Because the idea was to take, you know, the ultimate Marvel superhero, and, you know, let's face it, I love these characters, I love these universes, but it always comes down to two guys in costumes punching each other in the face, you know? However great these movies are, at some point it's a bunch of people in costumes punching each other in the face. Um, and he was going to question the very foundation of that universe and of that life that he'd lived for 40 years. And it wasn't going to go well. And the government was going to turn against him. And the other heroes were going to turn against him. And the plan was the only allies he was going to find in this quest to find another way and to create world peace in some form were going to be Dr. Doom and the Submariner. It was going to be a huge, huge (laughs) Wow. And it was going to completely flip out Jack Monroe, who I I had already, I think, um, set something up. I don't remember if I did or not, but Jack was going to flip out, and ultimately uh, Nomad was going to assassinate Captain America at at the culmination of what was going to be at least another year or more arc of the story. And then my plan after that was uh, to have a new Captain America and was either going to be the Falcon as Captain America yeah. or, or this Black Crow character who was a Native American. I ultimately decided at least you know, a year in advance of the story ever being written, which was never written anyway, that it was going to be Black Crow because I thought, what a cool idea to have one of the first Americans be Captain America. Right, you know? yeah. Um, so this was like an epic thing and I pitched it to Mark Ruinwald and he said, this is great, let's do it. And... Uh, I started working on the first couple of plots that nothing was drawn yet. In fact, we had just probably just finished Captain America 300, and these plots went to Jim Shooter's desk, and Shooter did not like it. Oh, you know, yeah, that was his job. And I tell you, at the time, I was really pissed off. But now it's like, you know, it was his job. His job. He was the custodian of the Marvel universe. He had to make these decisions about what he thought these characters should or shouldn't do, or how they should or shouldn't act. And so, you know. It was his prerogative. It was his. It was his duty to do that. Uh, I disagreed with his decision, and I still disagree with that decision because I think it would have been a phenomenal story, especially in the in the early nineteen eighties to do a story like that would have yeah. been something. Well, you see those kind of things kind of pop up on all the time with comics now. Yes, now, but not then. But not exactly. then. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, she just said, "Forget it. We're not doing this." Story. His his version of Captain America would never do this. Is what he said. And I think there was a subtext there, and I don't know whether it was conscious with Jim, but the minute you have one of your major characters questioning the very reason for being that all your characters have, which is basically to punch somebody else in a costume in the face, it sort of undermines uh, your entire universe, you know? Right. Uh, 
So, so basically what happened was Captain America 300 was originally a double-sized issue, which, which opened the door on this new storyline. They cut that in half to a single-sized issue. Uh, I had written it. Uh, Schroeder went in and did a rewrite on it, or he had Mark rewrite things. Probably Schroeder did it himself. And so you will see the name Michael Ellis in the credits. I think it's Michael Ellis. Yeah. Um, I get credit for the plot, and Michael Ellis got credit for the script because I, I said, Mark, I can't have my name on the script because this isn't the story I wrote. And it was Mark who came up with Michael Ellis because that's a name for an old Monty Python skit. And he's, <laughs> yeah. I think they keep paging, but he never shows up. So it's the man who isn't there, you know? Oh, so yeah. That was a great, a, great, a great name to use in the credits. So we stuck Michael Ellis in the credits instead of me. Oh. I probably lost out on royalties. I never didn't think about it at the time. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, probably every time they reprint their book, they're going, we got to send money to Michael Ellis, but we can't find him, you know? Uh, <laughs> so that's the story. But, but it had a happy ending because I took that story after that and I started to rework it. I said, let me take it out of the Marvel Universe, and I'll do it somewhere else with an original character. I actually, not long afterwards, almost did it for Epic Comics, but didn't. And I put the story away. And every every few years, I would dust it off and play with it, and I'd pitch it to somebody, and they just wouldn't get it. And I'd put it away, and literally, was it 20 years later, 25 years later? It was like 2007. Um, I, I, I had shown it to a friend of mine named Mike Cavallaro, a wonderful artist, and Mike loved it and, and, and wanted to draw it. And I pitched it to IDW. And it's the only time it ever happened to me. I pitched it to them in the morning, and it was approved that afternoon. Whoa. It was the, so it took me 25 years to get the fastest approval. That's <laughs> amazing. And we did this series called The Life and Times of Savior 28, which is out there in a trade paperback for anyone who's interested, which takes the bones of what was going to be the Captain America story uh, recast it in a universe and with characters that are brand new, which gave me the freedom to tell the story exactly the way I wanted to, and recast it in the age of Bush and Obama as opposed to the age of Reagan. Um, right. I mean, I was writing that story now. Holy moly! Yeah, yeah, um, right. And I think it's one of the best things I've ever done. Certainly, the, the I think the finest superhero story I've ever written. I'm very, very proud of it, and it's out there. And I encourage people, if you're a Captain America fan, to check it out and get a sense of where that story was going to go. And then we take it to lots of new places as well. Wow. Do you have anything you're currently working on that you'd like to uh, share with the listeners? Sure. I'm, I'm always happy to. At, at DC Comics, uh, Keith Giffen and I are co-writing our, our, our weird Scooby-Doo book, Scooby Apocalypse. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's been going great. Yeah. We're having a, you know, I, I never in a million years thought I would end up like, how did I end up on this book? You know? Yeah. Uh, but we're having such a good time with it such a good time with it and it's a total reinvention of Scooby-Doo and yet I think it remains true to to the essence of those characters and uh, I just uh, am joining Keith also on the Blue Beetle book at DC nice. um, I start with issue number 8 on that uh, over at IDW we just finished uh, one of my creator owned series uh, the second volume of The Adventures of Augusta Wind uh, that collected edition of the second series will be out next month and I'm just starting a new series with Mike Cavallaro, who I mentioned did the Life and Times of Savory 28, also for IDW, a creator-owned thing called Impossible Incorporated. We're just we're, we're literally working on the first issue as we speak. Very excited about it. It's a story that Mike and I have wanted to do for a few years now. Cool. Uh, I continue to work in animation. I'm working on a big uh, DC-related uh, anime. Another because uh, I've I've written for a lot of the DC animated shows. And I've done several of the DC animated movies. I'm working on another DC animated movie. I can't say what it is or which characters, but I'm having a great time with it. 
and other projects in the pipeline as well, but those are the ones I can talk about. Nice. Wow. This has been a great conversation. I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us today, JM. Well, yeah, you're very welcome. It's, you know, it's, like I said, it's interesting to me because for years no one, was, no one said two words to me about Captain America. And, now it's one, and I don't know whether it's because of the movies or because the kids that were reading that run at the time are now adults. Right. But for some reason, it comes up all the time now. Well, that's good. So I'm grateful that those stories are still being appreciated, that these things that we've been talking about that, you know, I, I, I you know, just popped up as part of my run have had long lives in the Marvel Universe. It's a nice thing. Yeah, we're all waiting for them to be reprinted in some nice collections. Yes, I would love to see that whole run. You know, they've, they've reprinted parts of it. Yeah. But I would love to see that whole run get reprinted. Definitely. It would be, be great. Are you listening, Marvel? The whole run. Yep, come on. 